Saturday Night, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by Julius J. Epstein, based on his and his brother Philip G. Epstein's play Front Porch in Flatbush, was expected to open on Broadway in the 1954-1955 season. Because of the untimely death of lead producer Lemuel Ayers, its debut was delayed indefinitely. Following a student production at the University of Birmingham, it finally made its professional premiere at London's Bridewell Theater in 1997, followed by its American premiere in Chicago in 1993, and at last arriving in New York, off-Broadway in 2000, 45 years after it was first announced, taking its place as the earliest and one of the most charming in the Sondheim canon. I'm crossing the rainbow. I'm taking a ride to a razzle-dazzle world on the other side. Very special world. Gotta have a pass. Call, collapse. A man can be a runner by day, but socially what counts is the way he looks. That's what I mean by class. I've got two suits, just two to my name. I got just two suits, but both of them came from books. That's what I mean by class. Class is when you're wrapped in tapestry tweed and always looking impeccable in what you're wrapped in. Class is when you demonstrate your like, for instance, when you call a waiter captain. This is why a room is a flat. You don't say tie, you call it cravat. Say you drink from a tumbler instead of a glass. That's the mark of someone who has what I call class. With us today is actor and playwright, composer Frankie Leo Bennett, most recently seen in the Chicago premiere of Head Over Heels. He's also appeared in In the Heights, Altar Boys, 1776, and as Tobias Frag in Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. His most recent composition is Resident Services, a crossed-up animal musical. Multi-award-winning actor and recording artist Andrea Burns, best known for her work on Broadway, including The Rose Tattoo, On Your Feet, The Nance, in the Heights, The Full Monty, Beauty and the Beast, and for creating the role of Celeste in the New York premiere of the musical Saturday Night. An actor and musician, Nick Misik, whose broad resume includes roles in Macbeth and Love's Labor's Lost at Chicago Shakespeare, Once at the Paramount Theater, Twelfth Night at Writers Theater, as well as leading roles in Call Me Madam, Minnie's Boys, and Can Can at Porchlight Music Theater. Welcome everyone to the round table. So happy to talk about this show, uh, the, the, the sort of a wonderful odd duck that we were really lucky uh, late in Sondheim's career to, to have uh, uh, added to the whole group and grouping of his shows and for those of us to be able to see it and be part of it. I like to start these conversations with uh, how a show first came into our lives. When did we first encounter this work of art? either as an actor in the piece or an audience member. For me, I saw that Chicago 
uh, premier production, the American premier at a company that is here in Chicago called Pegasus Players that uh, spent a lot of time uh, focusing on rarely seen Sondheim works. And um, there was a lot written about the show. There were, there were critics that were allowed or, or writers that were allowed to come in and actually follow the making of it. So I followed it very intently, waiting to get there to opening night and see uh, what ultimately was a very unique kind of an experience for what I had already then known so much about Sondheim. So this was a real gift to be able to, to enjoy this. How about each of you, when did uh, Saturday night first come into your life? Let's start with uh, Andrea. Well, um, growing up, I was, of course, a big, big Sondheim fan, but I didn't know anything about Saturday Night until I auditioned for the New York production. They were doing it um, off-Broadway at Second Stage, also as a celebration of Sondheim's 70th birthday. This year, in 2020, we celebrated his 90th. Um, and so uh, it was tremendously exciting to be going in to sing for him at all. I think what was incredible about that group of actors that were um, part of the gang of Saturday Night was that we were probably that first generation of kids who had grown up just sort of obsessing over Sondheim, who then as young adults actually got to be, actually got to work with him. So we were a bunch of huge super fans um, realizing dreams, quite frankly. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Nick, how about you? Yeah. Uh, not as interesting as that story, but uh, um, it's funny that you, you you said you're like the first generation of those like savants, those like Sondheim kids who like just followed it. And I was, I was one of those kids too. I think I have unfortunately have never even, I have not seen the production yet. I have scratched the internet trying to find some bootleg. Usually there's something of some production somewhere, but this is like the one that's just escaped me. So I've only listened to both of the recordings and, um, but like my experience to Shakespeare is um, our theater festival, you know, the state, the, the state show was going to be into the woods. And so I was really excited to show. I, you know, obsessed, obsessed, obsessed. And then, you know, it didn't happen. But then like a year later, I got to do a community production of Into the Woods. And once you do a community production of Sondheim, you're, you're in the gang. You are, <laughs> um, you don't go back. And so it was around that time that my girlfriend at the time, we were like, okay, we're gonna be the Sondheim like lovers and like Sondheim like like disciples. And I still joke to this day that like Sondheim is my my Lord and savior. Uh, but he, uh, but so Spotify was still happening around that time. So like when you live in the suburbs of Chicago, all you do is drive around everywhere. And so you put on Spotify and it was that off-Broadway recording that was the one that it was just, you tick off the list. And I remember listening to it in the car, just driving to work one day. And to be completely honest, I it wasn't one of the ones that I was on repeat, like Company or Follies or Into the Woods. Um, but I still remember it. I still remember listening to it for the first time, just being like, huh, this is interesting. This is this doesn't feel like any of the rest. And um, and it, it's because it, it's it, in some ways it isn't. And, uh, and I'm glad we're, and, and sometimes it's just not talked about at all. So I'm glad that we're talking about it today. <laughs> Frankie? Yeah, um, it, it kind of comes in this weird dual package, I think in college where, you know, cause growing up in rural Colorado, um, Sondheim who? And so you know, <laughs> I, it was kind of like, 
okay, we were, I was lucky to get to Into the Woods by my senior year of high school. So, you know, but you get into college and whatnot, and that's when you really start doing those deep dives into the, you know, singers anthology books and, and, and rep in general. Um, but the two that kind of show up as like a, oh, that Sondheim was, um, if you can find me, I'm here from Evening Primrose. And then of course, so many people. Um, and I distinctly remember it was either a techniques class or just some random musical theater course. Um, and I'll shout out to Sarah Cartwright because her version of this, she was a classmate of mine, just always sticks in my head is that you hear that haunting opening to so many people and you're just like, what is that? What is that? What am I getting myself into? And then just her performance of that has like been like, wow, that that's Saturday night. That song to me is Saturday night um, mm. for a multitude of reasons. I said the man for me must have a castle, a man of means he'd be, a man of fame. And then I met a man who hadn't any without a In when I saw Marry Me a Little with Porchlight Music Theater, that's when I added on to the Saturday night conversation with Saturday Night, So Many People, um, A Moment With You, is that it's just one of those things that's like true to Sondheim fashion. It creeps up when you don't expect it to, and you just go, oh yeah, that's right. That's 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 his show. Yeah, yeah. It it is it is deceptive in the sense that. Uh, things that I've read about him, and especially after or, or while your production was still happening, Andrea, or after he had seen it, uh, he was asked, well, what do you think about this show in your complete, you know, package of everything you've done? And he said, I really don't have any opinion on it. And at the same time, I'll sit there and, and in watching your production, 
sit there and cringe at things he wrote in his early 20s, but at the same time, um, be brave enough to go, but I'm not going to clean it up. It, as, as I think I described it, it's my baby pictures. It's the artistic equivalent of my baby pictures. Was he part of, uh, Andrea, was he there at all? Did he, I know he was very busy at the time that this was happening, but did he participate with you at all? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, he was at run-throughs. He had notes. Um, both of those things are true. I think one beautiful thing about getting to work with him on something that was so nostalgic uh, and of a time where he was just starting out was that he was generally very cheerful and charmed. And, and sometimes you got a little glimpse of that young writer who was thinking, I can't believe this is getting done. I can't believe I'm watching this in New York, <laughs> right? We're looking at the master. And uh, that was, he was, uh, I think we were lucky because he was genuinely in such a good mood and so charmed by all of us. But also I think he did struggle with wanting to fix things. I mean, we had a moment, love it, uh, during One Wonderful Day. There's a, uh, Bobby and Celeste are trying to think of like uh, the, they're, they're talking about Bobby's thinking it's a horrible day. Celeste is thinking it's a wonderful day about celebrating Helen and Jean getting married. And they keep topping each other with words. And Uxorius uh, is the last word that Celeste said. And I remember him saying, I'm going to get you a better lyric there. You know? <laughs> and I just remember thinking, oh, are you Sondheim? <laughs> you know, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, it's it's my honor to sing anything, you know, you put to paper. But I think he did struggle with that in the beginning because it was in New York and it was alive and it was getting done. And I think he did want to tweak it a little bit, but ultimately I think he did sort of sit back and say, you know, this represents a time in my life and I'm not gonna fuss with it. <laughs>
Again, he came in for the Chicago for production for the American premiere as well and spent some time with director Gary Griffin and yes. Mark Robin, who was choreographing and, and worked on some things. And, and I believe, uh, and, and Frankie and Nick can maybe talk a little bit more to this. I know that he contributed some additional even songs to that sh Chicago premiere. Um, but it, it does seem like it's, it's a show that's a wonderful gift, not only for young actors to say, there's a show for us that's not West Side Story where I have to dance my butt off, but I right. can act. Um, but also it must've been an incredible gift for him. My God, I mean, 45 years later to finally see it, even though it was maybe something that, um, you know, was, was a, a lark for him, but, but in that sense. Yeah, but, you know, it seems like it was just like a means to an end for him, at, at least initially. It was like, this is the show that's going to give me my Broadway debut. This is the show. And when it didn't happen because of the tragic, you know, heart attack, or uh, yeah, was that he was like, well, now I got my book. Now I got my book to create something or to be, to get hired for all these things. And it is such a shame because I, 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 you know, you read the few, the few pages that these books talk about Saturday night, it's like, well, if it did go up, it'd just be a flop and that'd be it. And it's like, and a lot of the process of, you know, collaboration is that final piece, which is the audience member. And he never got to actually have that. And so I, you know, they said it's gonna, it was, it would flop it, you know, it's a flat story, blah, blah, blah. But until you actually have that audience member to engagement, engage with, I'm really curious that it, it could have took his career in a completely different uh, trajectory if it even opened whether whether or not it was a flop or a hit you know just opening would have created uh, would have opened some doors <laughs> not to be punny but yeah. oh sorry go ahead no i was just appreciate the merrily we roll along uh <laughs> rest reference there about opening doors well, um, you, I feel like this is the show that they're talking about during opening doors. You know, like this, this yeah. is the, this is what Merrily is when we're in that segment of it. It's just this idea mm -hmm. of I, I'm writing something. I'm oh, it has to be written now. Oh, I have to do it this way. 
Who wants to live in New York? Who wants the worry, the noise, the dirt, the heat? Who wants the garbage cans clanging in the streets? Suddenly I do. They're always popping their cork. I'll fix that line. The cops, the cabbies, the sales girls up at Saks. You gotta have a real taste for maniacs. Suddenly I do. That's great. That's swell. The other stuff as well. It isn't every day I hear a score this strong. But fellas, if I may, there's only one thing wrong. There's not a tune you can hum. There's not a tune you go bum 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 de dum. You need a tune to go bum 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 de dum. Give me some melody. Why can't you throw them a crumb? What's wrong with letting them tap their toes a bit? I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit. Give me some melody. Oh, sure. I know, it's not that kind of show But can't you have a score that's sort of in between But play a little more, I'll show you what I mean Who wants to live in New York? I always hated the dirt, the heat, the noise But ever since I met you, I Listen boys, maybe it's me But that's just not a hum-a-mum-a-mum-a-mum-a-bull melody Write more, work hard, leave your name with the girl Less avant-garde, leave your name with the girl Just write a plain old melody And my big question is that because he mentioned so much, especially in, in finishing the hat, that you know that like it was supposed to be Frank Lesser's show, and you know, and he turned it down, and it just goes, oh well, when you put it in that frame, this whole show makes sense. Is that it's it's Sondheim, baby Sondheim versus what he thinks Frank Lesser would have done, you know, yes. and it's like okay. So my concern, if I mean, now that it's already been done, I guess it's not a real concern. It's just going, would people have pegged him for just being another Frank Lesser? Um, would, and then of course, the other part of that argument is that this is that argument where Sondheim did lyrics for so long and then finally only got to do music and lyrics with Forum is that just going, would we have ever had that debate that, oh, well, Sondheim doesn't know what he's doing with music, is that it just, there's so many questions that imagine being 23 through 26 and going, I don't know, my career is just solely based on what show I get on Broadway first. Right, and yet there's an undeniable, he's undeniable, I think that's what's so exciting. You think, okay, he might've thought like, this is, you know, that they want a Frank Lesser-esque kind of sound, you know, this is my version of it, but you can't deny something like Montana Chem or Delighted, I'm sure, or in the movies where you go, I mean, Montana Chem in particular was very exciting to all of us because we're like, oh no, we, we're legit. This is legit Sondheim territory, right? Um, and to think that he was thinking in that way then while also producing sweeping melodies and knowing that he could because some of those melodies are beautiful. I mean, also What More Do I Need is a fantastic song as well. Brooklyn. Once I hated this city, now it can't get me down. Slushy, humid, and gritty, what a pretty town. What thought I could be duller, more depressing, less gay. Now my favorite color is gray. Oh, all of rain as it turns to sleep. Black of sun on a one-way street. I love the grime on 
fly and a fly or two. Why, I can see half a tree. And what more do I need? The dust is thick and it's galling. It simply can't be excused. In winter, even the falling snow looks used. My window pane may not give much light. I see you, so the view is bright. If I can love you, I'll pay the dirt no heed. With your love, what more do I need? What's my name? Helen. What's that? A top. What's playing at the Midwood? A movie! <laughs> Someone shouting for quiet. Someone starting a brawl. Down the block there's a riot. And I'll buy it all. Listen now, I'm ecstatic. Hold me close and keep still. Hear the lovely new magic trip. A subway train goes through the blocks. A taxi horn on the corner hops. But I adore every rock. And what more do I need? I hear a crane making street repairs. A two-ton child running wild upstairs. Steam pipes bang. Sirens clang. Gales in the hall. <laughs> so loud you can't hear the mama Paolo more. An aeroplane goes across the bay, and I can't hear you as clear as interesting but you're right if he had been given license to be doing music and lyrics from the very beginning how might that have affected his writing yeah it's frank you bring up a, a good point that that strikes me when i listen to the show and when i reread it of course and now naturally you know with 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 julius epstein uh, most famous he and his brother for writing casablanca but but so many of those great warner brothers movies uh, from the 30s and 40s, and interesting that he never wrote with with him again. Um, that this is a, a a show that to me it kept jumping out at me, and I'm going, what does this remind me of? And I know you're saying Frank Lesser, but to me it feels very Comden and Green. Oh sure, mm, and then I kept definitely more so. It really feels like Wonderful Town. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going, well, wait a minute, Wonderful Town. Wonderful Town takes place in the early 30s. This takes place in the late 50s. Wonderful Town was on Broadway in 1953, so he must have just seen it. And then he's writing this show for 1954-55. And there's even a, a section of music um, that literally feels like it's lifted from Wonderful. Well, I mean, there's there's the List song that uh, that is it that Hank sings, uh, Exhibit A, Exhibit B. Yeah. That's Bobby, Bobby Exhibit A. Like mm -hmm. hundred ways to lose a man. You know, one of these. Right. <laughs> right. And I was just thought, you know, and that is the thing you're talking about that when we're young and we're sponges. And we, we are looking at everything that, that is going on around us and going, oh, well, if I do that or if I ape this person's style, this feels in, in some ways 
like it's bridging both things. Like it's him trying, like living in that world of what would Frank Lesser do? And then he has little Sondheim inside of him writing things, writing the music of the future that we're already hearing the, the quartets in Follies. Hey there, uh, hey upstairs, yes. da, 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 da. Mm, all right. of that is in there. And stories of young people. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing piece in that sense that it, it literally is like sitting on a, on a teeter-totter. It, it, it makes me kind of reinvent that wheel as a young writer composer myself, the, the, like the, the job triangle that they always talk about, you can have it fast and cheap, but you can't have it good, is that you know, with musical composition, I feel like, and this piece is like a perfect example of it, you can have it new, efficient, or commercial, you know, and I feel like you can only have two of them, one of them kind of gets left out. And I felt like with this, that Sondheim was kind of struggling, or not struggling, but battling with all three is that, you know, try wanting to develop your own voice as this new person on the scene, but you also know that this is going to be your first Broadway show and, or could be your first Broadway show. And it's also the thing that needs to sell money is that I think we get a glimpse in like, this is the more commercial number. This could be the one that's, you know, a hit and whatnot. But, but I also want to write something that speaks to who I am as an uh, intellectual, but it's also like, yeah, but I also got to fulfill this is that I think what's great about this particular score is you kind of get to see Sondheim's thought process until we get to what more do I need? And I go, wow, that's that Sondheim's future is right there in that finale. Yeah, I think that the, but I think that you can also, the love for all of the styles can also coexist mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just the battle of, because remember we all treat Sondheim with such reverence, but you're just talking about a young writer mm -hmm. who is also just like every young writer influenced by the sounds of his day and may like them very much. Right. Um, and so there's the thing that you want to do and there's the thing that you that sounds good. And there's the thing that sounds like other people. I think that's what's so exciting about I work with a lot of new writers watching and I've, I've worked with a lot of them from the very beginning to the astronomical. Right. And so watching them play until they go, I like a little this, I like a little that. And you can hear if you're, you know, a big nerd like I am, like all of us are today, you know, I'll be like, oh, I see where you did that. I say, I hear this and I hear this writer and I hear this era and I hear this, 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 oh, look what they did there. But it really is out of um, ultimately, even when they're dipping into everybody else's maybe palette, there is a singular color that comes out of them that is a combination of all. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think that is exciting too. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily will say like, he was all Montana Kemen into the woods. Like that's who he was, but he had to, you know, I, I think it was all in there. And it was like, I don't know, maybe what will people think of this? What will people think of this? Because I just find that there's great, I, I don't know. I feel like we would feel the pastichiness mm. of certain numbers if they weren't sincere. I feel like his melodies are in that are beautiful mm -hmm. and, and very much him in, based on where he was at at the time. I don't know, I've, I'm very big on now, like we revere people as geniuses. Um, and as an educator, I always say, right, but let's remember, this is a young artist trying to find their voice. What were the influences? Who were they listening to? You know, you have Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's like, it doesn't exist without Beyonce mm -hmm. and without Joseph Stein, mm -hmm. you know, and Bach and Harnick and right. It's like, yeah. if they're all, they all, that's, 
part of the magic of him is you can really feel how they all fuse. Right. Yes. Such a great point. And, and he talks about um, in, uh, uh, in the hat book uh, about a day that he was invited to, you, you probably have read this, when he was invited to the lunch with uh, all of these great composers <laughs> with Burton Lane and, and um, E.Y. Harburg and, and they all just sort of welcomed him in and it asked everybody to play a little bit of their own music. And I can't even imagine, you know, Harold Rome or whoever else was there. And yet they were so generous and kind and said, and now, hey, everybody, there's this new young guy on the block and gave him a crack and he played three songs from this show. And just that, it wasn't as though there was, they were too generous or too uh, uh, tight with their, their feedback. Their feedback was just, as composer to composer, hey, you might want to think about, and what an incredible gift that must have been for him, as well as to have met and known all of these other composers and, and to have it be such a wonderful and good experience uh, to be welcomed into the club of, of, of a sort, you know. Well, I think that's the magic of musical theater, right? It's such a collaborative process. It's such a, even when you are, you know, competing, in the, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Steven Sondheim, they're friends, you know, it's like, it's it's such a collaborative process that these people, they just wanna create great art. And like Frankie said, you know, there are times where it's like, we need to sell the money or we need to sell the tickets and stuff. But at the same time, there's, I, for most artists, I believe, I think, is that there's this fuel to just create what's inside. And you're right, he, he might've been picking, I mean, like I hear falling in love with love and isn't it? It's like that big one wall, it's like, I hear a lot of stuff. I hear Cole Porter. I hear I and but then I hear being alive in um, all I all all for you, like all I am for you, like like that, like da na 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 na. And he yes, and it's like it's exactly. And so I think um, I think it's awesome that the musical theater community, especially composers and writers, are are there to just be there and and help when they can. Not just I'm sure there are the there are the there are the artists that are like, you know, I'm doing my piece, this is my work, I'm, I'm number one. But for the most part, at least in my experience in the musical theater community, it's all about collaboration. It's all about like trying to find the right word. It's all about trying to uh, create the, the, the piece that's inside. But then on the other side, you have the, his, the agents that he met who fell asleep while he was performing those two, three songs from that story too. So it's like, you, you get everything in between, right? You got the agents who are like fall asleep with his three songs that he made for, you know, $400 or whatever it was. And then uh, it gets the nod from the wife saying, yeah, yes, it's good, it's good. Give him the job. <laughs> so in terms of this piece itself, um, what strikes me uh, about it as I went back and reread it, I forgot how sort of book heavy it is. And this is something that we talk about as we've gone through a number of these Sondheim shows, especially early in his career, when you, he was dealing with collaborators, the likes of Leonard Bernstein and Julie Stein and major voices in a room about who is the muscle in the room from you know sort of the term that's used in that old book, The Season, who was the muscle in the room. Um, do we feel, and, and did you feel, uh, Andrea, that that even working, even with the Epstein brothers not still in this on the planet, 
was their presence still very much a part of the show for you or did it feel that it was more dominated by Sondheim's presence? Because it is a very book heavy show. There are some long scenes and more than that, a lot of characters. Yes. Um, I mean, I happen to, I really loved the book. I thought that, you know, it's so great when, um, when the jokes are solid and there was just such a wonderful old school Jewish vaudevillian Brooklyn understanding and in, in some of the jokes, which I, I just remember really enjoying that part of it. But um, to your point, I think probably when they were writing it, I mean, who, who, of course, who was the muscle in the room, the Epstein brothers, they were the success. And then the kid was the kid who wrote the music. And then you cut to 45 years later, where clearly the muscle in the room is Sondheim, right? So uh, it was all about serving him. Um, and so the book was not, no, I did not feel like it dominated it, but I really enjoyed it. I felt like it, what I love about it and what you said, like, if I don't, you know, if I'm not a dancer, this is like a character actor's musical mm -hmm. and every single person is, you know, Helen and Jean are weirdos too, everybody, right? So that was, was what's so delicious about playing it. And, and that was really satisfying with the Epstein brothers script, even though yes, some scenes went on long. Um, I remember all of us really enjoying it. Yeah. It, well, and it is, it, it has that well-made play feel of, of a boulevard comedy from the 1940s or 50s that has, yes. you know, a bunch of hijinks, a bunch of, you could see this being that it was written by the, the Epstein brothers. You could also imagine this being filmed at Warner Brothers. Totally. All of that great Warner Brothers stock character group of Alan Hale and, you know, the Jenkins and I mean, all of those guys who, who performed in all those Humphrey Bogart movies, you know, as the the sidekick guys. And so it's fun to be able to dig into some of the, the, the joys you find when you do guys and dolls again to go, oh my God, these characters yes. and, the, and the plotting of it, you know, uh, is so fun. Um, Frankie, what do you, as a playwright yourself, what do you, when you look at something like this, um, does it spark you or does it just seem to you to be wholly old fashioned and sort of, well, nobody would ever really write? that way again? Or do it, you get inspired by something like this? I think just, I, I'm personally always inspired by anything that's madcap, anything that is just <laughs> openly absurd. And, you know, it, when I, even when I'm coaching other, you know, high schoolers, I'm just like, there, there's always a moment in every show where the character realizes how ridiculous this whole thing is. That there's always a character that just like, has this revelation that I'm in the midst of being in something ridiculous, you know, and that's what's great about it is that you kind of just start in ridiculous and just go from there is that we rarely get these pieces nowadays because everyone wants to have a comment, you know, and, and I fully respect that is that everyone wants when, when you get to that level as a writer, you want to be writing something important, you know, you want to feel like you're writing something important. And Saturday night is important by the way of that it just goes, let us do the work, we're going to make you laugh. We're gonna we're gonna make you smile, and you're gonna feel really quite beautiful and refreshed at the end of it, you know. And those shows are also just as important as anything anything that is a commentary, you know. And sometimes even more effective about saying like this is where we're at as like humanity. And so it absolutely it feels old fashioned, but I was laughing the entire time. You know, we get to that second act, and it's just like 
you almost want it to be more convoluted. <laughs> you know, you're just like, they've gotten this far, like how much more crazy can you get? And there's a mastery to allowing the craziness not to outdo itself. And that takes, you know, and that's what speaks to the brilliance of the book is that I'm just like, yeah, no, I'm, I would sit through a whole two hours of this and still be laughing at the end of it. It doesn't feel ridiculous because the characters are aware that this is somewhat aware that this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, there is, there is a moral center to this comedy. It's not just hijinks for hijinks sake. There is something that it is really trying to say about living your life. And especially being somebody in their teens and early twenties as these characters are, that, that the Epsteins who were mature seasoned professionals who wrote some of the great films of American history, combining with this young guy who had not really said anything yet. And what a magical combination of them to write a musical up for and presumably about uh, you know, young people and to kind of tell, present a scenario. What if you were able to get rich quick? What yeah. would happen? It, uh, it's, the story itself combined with Sondheim's own love and constant like, but I could have done this, but I'm not gonna correct this and whatnot, not to completely contemporize the conversation, but there's a great sequence in that new movie, Soul, where I'm gonna just paraphrase as quick as possible that they just go, you know, there's some fish that see themselves as only in the water. And then there's some that see themselves like, no, I'm looking for the ocean. It's like, no, you're already in the ocean. You know what I mean? And like, I think that that's, that's Saturday night. And that's, I think Sondheim's experience with this is that it just goes, gosh, I wish I, this first show could have, you know, I look at all these mistakes I made and it just goes, yeah, but you were already writing for Broadway. You know what I mean? Like this, mm. you were already there. You know what I mean? And it, and so if what, if this wasn't your first show and then in terms of the actual story of it, it just goes, these, these, these crazy kids are just like, gosh, I want to be living life. And it's like, you're already living life. Just keep living it. And there's something remarkably beautiful about the humanity of that. Correct. And, and the, interestingly enough, as old fashioned as it is, um, authenticity, which is a word we throw out a lot, is really at the core of this, right? right. Be yourself. Do you. All these things that we think are so now, but they also so line up with Sondheim's sensibility, who always seem to be speaking to us always from such a very real human place. So even in a madcap period piece, he seemed to have been perfectly matched. For, yeah. for the message. The beautiful people that are for you, their blood is blue. Crowd up your class, be so keen, be so, be so keen, be so, be so, be so, be so, be so, be so, All things expensive and choice and rare. I've got the friends that I need to share what I've got, but I need the things to share. Some people live up their lives and don't give a damn. They buy things on the install and plan. That's not for me. I don't want to be what I am. What I can. The beautiful, beautiful, get up and go. 
Havana cigars across country trips in my powered car. Captain, bring me a brandy and a large demi tasse. I was reading it again like I, I I felt very in it I felt very relatable to it as a young person and mm -hmm. like is a younger or is an older like millennial cusp gen z kid like there's a lot of when you read into it a little bit I feel I get the sense of like there's a lot of expectation there's a lot of like grandeur wants and that like I want song you know him wanting to be this fancy person is is and and even just Saturday night like I'd rather be dead when you're not doing, you know, when you're not doing anything is so understandable. I completely, I remember being a college kid and just being like, I need to be doing something, you know, I need to be having fun. I need to be enjoying life, like you said. And it's, it's just, I, I was relating to it a lot more as like now, as I'm becoming more into my late twenties, it's like the ending specifically is like, okay, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. I should appreciate what I have kind of feeling. And here, I, here we are in the pandemic. It's like, yeah, I kind of, I can't take what I have for granted. You know, I am healthy. I am like living this kind of, uh, I am living life and I am in a safe space right now, like I'm a safe spot. And so these, there's always this tug of like, you need to be, you know, you need to be grander. You need to be meeting these expectations that I put on myself or, or society has put on, on us. And yet at the same time, it's like, no, I'm, I'm happy to be living in my condo with my girlfriend, like enjoying what I can from this moment. And, and, uh, and I, I'm that just that last, I mean, you get the suicide scene is really what is really what challenged me the most. I think it's just, it, it's, I think any young person who's reached that point of like, I'm not re I'm not making expectations. I'm not where I think I'm supposed to be has had that moment and uh and I think I think yes it is a comedy and yes it gets wraps it gets wrapped up a little kind of haphazardly but it, at the same time there's some real groundedness that I think could provoke any audience today specifically and I'm surprised that especially in like Chicago theaters and our storefront theaters that the, the work hasn't been produced more often you can do this show for uh for you know as a chamber musical mm -hmm. and I was even thinking like if you want it, you could go the, you know, the, the company route and have the actors do the, the instruments too. Like, I think that would be really interesting um, to see that production, but it, it's definitely, I think it's definitely warrant, warrants more uh, interpretation or just being seen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. I, I, and I used to make the joke actually um, when we were in rehearsals, <laughs> I would say, you guys, are we in Saturday night fever? <laughs> it's like the same story Brooklyn guy wants to get over the bridge once you know I just said this is so funny it's like there's a and 70s show running while you were doing Saturday night I oh I don't know I mean I'm referring to the movie but I don't oh I've, no I've it was not it wasn't I for some no. reason I thought the musical was also running. no because Natasha Diaz who played uh a myriad of roles and she sang loves a bond was in Saturday Night Fever okay. so um, yeah, but I remember th just thinking of the John Travolta, like Gene is John Travolta, like, you know, we're trying to get out of Brooklyn. And I said, this is wild. 
this is, uh, you know, tale as old as time mm -hmm. in a weird way. But even more than that, in a strange way, the whole, and, and Sanam refers to this, I, I know in, in, uh, in his books, you know, about, it's a get rich quick scheme, get rich quick, get rich quick, and how do you get rich, and you're young, and, and it struck me as I'm reading that, I'm going, you know, we have done, obviously, the, in, our, in our roundtable conversations, we've already done um, Bounce, Wise Guys, you know, th that whole journey of that show. And at one time, and Sondheim had said, he still thinks the best title for Roadshow would be Get Rich Quick. And I look at that and I kept thinking about it and going, my God, I'm, and God forbid it's his last show. But it might be that the first show and the last show are still about the same thing. Friends, brothers, family members wrestling with what is important versus the elusive get rich quick scheme to get you to fame, which then kind of reappears again in follies, reappears again throughout, you know, even in-, in Sunday. Sunday, yeah. so many. It's it's that core. The artist journey. I mean, it's the questioning. Do I want to be true to who I am and the people who love me and have that expression? But society is telling me it's not enough and I need to be validated in this other way, but that doesn't feel real to me. But then how do I, It's. I think it's the artist's constant. Um, I mean, Nick was just talking about it. It's, it's the constant tug of war, right? Yeah. It's the FOMO you know, versus the, right, versus the, I'm really, you know, don't take anything for granted, nothing's promised. And part of you does know that. Right. It, it reminds me of the conversation. I think it was the, when he was playing in front of all the, the, I can't remember who said it specifically, but he said, you know, it's okay not to write the best hit. It's okay not Correct. to write the biggest blockbuster every time. And I think like, that's, it's funny, you, you kept saying get rich quick, get rich quick, quick, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's Roadshow, that's Roadshow. And I was like, you're right, it's exactly right. It's kind of, it feels like this kind of full circle thing. And like you said, hopefully it's not the last show, but it's something that he was constantly struggling, struggling with, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, but I think at the core, he was also thinking, I don't have to, I don't have to write the next big hit. I don't have to get rich. I don't have to get rich. By the way, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm sorry, I just want to no, add no. to that. Uh, I didn't know that he was told that because I know for a fact it's something he told Jason Robert Brown in the beginning. Wow. Every cool, show doesn't right? have to be a barn burner. Every song doesn't have to be a showstopper. Mm -hmm. It does occur to me that so much of, of his consciousness, and we know how Lin-Manuel Miranda reveres him and, and references him and just, you know, I mean, rightfully so. Um, but that Sondheim was coming up and transitioning at the moment that Broadway was transitioning in the 60s, letting go of the Rodgers and Hammerstein era, embracing this whole new era and, and getting to meet all of the people who literally created what we now know or think of as Broadway and watching them each individually struggle to see who became a Rodgers and Hammerstein and who became a Burton Lane, who the four of us have heard of, but probably most people on the street have no idea who, who Burton Lane or Harold Rome or any of, or Dorothy Fields, the people that Sondheim reveres are. Um, they just never reached that status. And then at the same time, Sondheim literally gets to be in the middle 
at the epicenter of that transition in writing something like Do I Hear a Waltz, where he's literally writing with Richard Rogers and the collision of these two eras, mm. who's going to come out you know, on the end and that you know, a satisfying work of art was not able to be created because it was just, they were just unresolvable. Um, and I think it just speaks to Sondheim's reverence for the concept of love you know, um, is that it's just so prevalent, his conversation, and even to be early 20s and already discussing, like, is it better to be alone or to collaborate? And, and, it, and I, that theme carries through all of his shows, is that, you know, the power of loneliness, but the destruction of loneliness. And, you know, of course, his, his, his childhood, of course, I think definitely inspired that kind of inner drive for himself and whatnot, is that to keep that theme going, at the advent of Broadway changing so dramatically is that I, I always associate Sondheim with discord in a positive way, is that you're always listening about what things are colliding. And I think that's why so many people to me sticks out so much is that you hear throughout the whole thing, this want for love and this, this drive to you know have something that is your own and to realize that it's already in front of you, but the music is saying something else, is that it's just like, but there's, you know, there's something there's something ominous. There's something, you know what I mean? Is that I just go to have that gear turning already at such a young age just speaks to like, this is where he was going. And it's it's interesting to find those seeds in this piece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say, he's the king of that too. I mean, I think immediately speaking of you, Frankie, like of Tobias and like, just think of that orchestration and nothing's gonna harm you um, in love its chorus. Do you know what I mean? Like that where- yeah, where two different things are happening at the same time. But I think that's why we love him. Look, everyone's nodding because we all know what it is because we're all obsessed, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, if it was, yeah. The things say, that's why I love coming to these, these conversations as fans more than experts, even though, you know, we all tended to nerd out when it comes to him, but you can't help but also just be a fan and watch nice. and, 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 and love all of the little things that, that happen even within the shows. And even within this, the first show, and I think of the, the music of this show and go, there are moments that are um, in some ways, even something like a moment with you because it is a pastiche for me already makes me start thinking of Follies, which itself is a show made up of pastiches that he's even starting to dabble in that area of what he then like makes a meal out of uh, in 15 more years. He's gonna you know, dig into something like that. But let, let's talk a little bit more about the music and what jumps out at us. If we were to say, you know, this is the music that really says to me what Saturday night is, I have a very difficult time because I love the bouncy up-tempos in this show. I love the neighborhood number. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I mean. You know, it's such a great number, but it's so atypical. And then you've got some of his absolute evergreens that are in here. Um, what are the, what's the music in here that really jumps out and you go, that's what I think of when I think Saturday night. For me- I mean, for me, oh, go ahead. No, you go. No, you go ahead, you go ahead. I mean, for me, it is the neighborhood, but it also has, it speaks to being in it, being part of that company and, um, and we were our, obviously every company bonds, it's like a family, but we are, we were our own kind of neighborhood in the fact that we were an individual collective that was trying to deliver something to Sondheim he'd never seen before. And at the same time, trying to, you know, wrestling with, 
oh my God, I'm a super fan. I'm trying not to die when I walk in the door. And how can I help? I'm an artist. I want to give you this gift. And all of us were in it. And we were able to look at, says, look how he's doing it. Look how she's doing it. Look how we're doing it. So it was an incredibly bonding experience for the company. So, and also that kind of a neighborhood, we had to all do a crazy uh, pyramid, <laughs> like the cheerleaders, which was the bane of our existence, not one of Kathleen Marshall, not one of our favorite <laughs> Kathleen Marshall moments. She made us all right. And so we had to write, we, and we collapsed at the end of it. So, um, but I, I just feel like when I think of Saturday night, I think of the neighborhood, I think of the friendship. And so that's what speaks to me about it. Mm -hmm. But of course there's, and, and New York and what more do I need? Which has stood the test of time. Yeah. Go I ahead, was, Nick, was, I'm sorry. No, I was, it's exactly that. You know, what more do I need? And then, uh, I remember that. I like those those two songs specifically. I mean, I really love the uh, uh, Eugene and uh, and Helen getting married song because there's that one part in the recording where she's where they say, "Oh, I hope I get married," and like, "Yeah, how you will, you will, I hope," <laughs> or something like that. You caught that? That's like yeah, so that's, very. I, oh my gosh! I that's I, my I, little ad lib. I can't believe you caught that. <laughs> oh my god, that's my favorite. Of, I'm glad it's you because I was like this. I was like, that's hilarious. But, Oh God! Yeah, it's those it's those ballads. For me, uh, like um, if you guys have ever heard the Sondheim sings albums, he he sings the remember that. And for me, I'm like, oh, there's Sondheim. There's Sondheim, th that young guy trying to create music and lyrics, and 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 in this new musical. You know, he he tried creating a new musical with Climb High, I think, and like now here he is, you know, doing the adaption with the, of this play. But I was like, this is his voice. I, I, I remember that. And I'm hearing him play it. I'm, and I'm like, oh, this, this is Saturday night to me. You were pouring coffee all over my new dress. From then on, I confess, I forget what I said and where I was at. But I did fall in love with you. I remember I did fall in love with you. That's the one thing I do remember. I remember that. I mean, like, there's so many good lyrics. I think, like, um, uh, you know, in, in the movies, life is uh, cleaner, uh, but in Brooklyn, it's a misdemeanor. It's a minor, mis it's a minor misdemeanor. Yeah. yeah, it's a yeah minor <laughs> misdemeanor. I think uh, there's the other there's the other line. Um, she says. Uh, she, uh, Helen says, um, you know, it's not the, it's not the means of the man. Oh, the man, yeah, man means more than the means. Yeah. Oh. And I'm like, oh, there's a Sondheim lyric. Like there it is in young Sondheim for that's going to be a, a phrase that I'm going to see time and time again. And, um, and, and it's in its own, in its own characterization in its own form in other shows. I was like, yes, there it is. That's what it means. <laughs> and, and that's, as Michael said, I mean, isn't that the whole thing we're talking about? The man means more than the means. Right. So we try to get rich quick and then realize that the man means more than the means. That's the whole, right. you know, lesson number eight. That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's right? any moment Sondheim crafts a game in this show. And and it's, you know, I remember that is, uh, I, we've already talked about it, but it just, it's one of those things where you just, when he's able to set up the beginning of so many people, and I remember that where the audience goes, oh, I wanna see what this ending is gonna be. I wanna see how this all plays out, is his game work in his lyric mm. at such an early age already is just 
so engaging and he speaks so much later about just you know that he always wanted the audience to be engaged in some way shape or form and this isn't necessarily a show that demands that level of engagement but there's moments where he slips it in and I think it's those two songs particularly I remember that and he comments on it being you know that at the end of it you it could be they could go either way that like this this memory between it but um and particularly Andrea your performance of it of course is is stunning and it's mm -hmm. just such a fun lovely charming moment where they just go doesn't matter where at the end of it we got to the same place you know and that's that moment where you just go oh <laughs> you just yes you just breathe and it's really quite lovely um thank you and actually i want to add something to that because of that something's about i remember that and recording it because we would do it live and it was kind of a barn burner like people were laughing the whole time uh, once we, once the flip, because of course Clark Thorell has like just this velvety and he's just an open heart and just handing his heart where I would just sort of like stamp all over it in my, in my verse, in my recollection, right? So it was a very funny number in the theater. And uh, when we got to the recording session, he, it was really interesting. He had asked Jonathan Tunick to write strings to put, we didn't have any strings. Hmm. And he wanted the romance, he really wanted the tenderness of the song to come through. And, and he had spoken to me and said, you know, we do this at night a certain way, but now it's really important to me for this recording, for the love between them, you know? And I, 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 I was so moved in the studio uh, by that. And then of course having him, hearing him say that. And then of course, hearing what Jonathan Tunick did when, you know, you're used to when you're in eight shows a week, it's sounding a certain way. It was so breathtaking. And I just felt like his heart was all over it. And um, yeah, it just speaks to underneath the game, the big heart and the depth of feeling that is always there. That is also what speaks to us about his work. And that still every song is one of his children. That, that it, it wasn't a throwaway. It wasn't like, it was, I, it's, I just want to do one more thing. I'm going to get tighten one more lyric, get one more bit to the orchestration. I mean, how thrilling that must have been for you and special. So say he's Incredible. This from, you know, and I'm going to be the one oh. who lay this down for the first time. How great. It was, it was very much. There's something in this show also that, that jumped out at me that he rarely does again. I can't think of it many more occasions, but where he writes sort of community numbers, like the neighborhood, everybody's sort of singing in, in a, he doesn't do chorus numbers in the traditional right. sense. And this is one of the only shows that he does it. Um, I know that he felt that he was being a bit revolutionary. And again, I guess looking back at 1954 by saying he was, he didn't want an ensemble. A, a, and I'm the baker in this scene and now I'm the lawyer in the next scene. Right. And that it was, th that was sort of his revolution, which now to us just seems, you know, like it's just economical. But um, he, what he does put in there and gives way to that tradition of, of having chorus numbers, which you rarely see in any of his other shows where everybody is just sort of like in the neighborhood or in the town, you know, Iowa stubborn or something like that. We don't see that from him, but it's in this show. And yet it's a chorus of specific point of views, points of view, excuse me. You yeah. know, you know who everybody is in that chorus. You, it's always like a ragtag group of people singing at you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's harmony and sometimes it cleans up, you know, we are kind of become one, but for the most part, and I think that's what makes 
that's what's so cool about it. He comes out of the tradition of that chorus, right? That we know from all the golden age musicals, except you are always aware of the individuals, at least when you're watching it in all of those chorus numbers. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like when you look at all the songs, particularly in Finishing the Hat, and he just, he has so many, you know, like ret retroactive thoughts about class. And that like, the, like this is the most sinful song on the face of the planet that I've ever written. And it's, you almost want to like hug 25 year old song time and be like, it's okay, I promise it. You know, <laughs> is that uh, that number in particular, I just go, well, I think that's where I, again, I don't want to say struggle just because it's like, you know, you're trying to invent, you know, you're trying to create something new is that he was trying to, how do I create a chorus number that gives, you know, all five, six people their point of view, but how do I make this an I want number, but do I want to write I want numbers anymore? Is that where he sees it as like sins, it's just like, you were trying to do something completely out of the box. You know what I mean? Is that like, I wish that my sins were so, uh, <laughs> were so charming. I wish my sins were, were so, you know, still colorful and, you know, in the pantheon of some of the best lyrics ever written, you know, is that it just, it's easy for us to look back and I'm sure, you know, I'm going to look back at any musical I write in this decade and whatnot and I go, whoa, but I just, you know, I, I, there's moments where I go, I know you respect it, but just give your, give your young self a hug and just know that you were, you were doing something new and insane at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's funny. Cause I think in that book, he says that, uh, I think it's loves a bond is like, this is the one song where I'm like, it's, it's, it's without sin. It's without sin. It's good. And then you listen to the, the, the off-broad recording and I'm like, you totally changed the lyrics. The lyrics are different right now. Like <laughs> obviously there was something that you didn't like that. And I guess that's what I love about the theater and specifically Sondheim is like, it's constantly breathing. And he, he says this all the time, it's constantly breathing, it's constant for reinterpretation. And yeah, just, yeah, I love that. I love that you said that for me, just give yourself a hug. It's, it's, it's no matter what you do, you're always gonna critique it in, in some way, even if you do think it is without sin. Yeah. If you think something is perfect, you still wanna wanna change something just a little bit because there's always work to be done. Stealing this from one of my writing mentors, uh, Jay Sebastian Fabal, is that art is never finished, it's merely abandoned. <laughs> you know? That's what they say about Broadway shows. Never you know, finished, merely abandoned. And Sondheim, you know, it's at, at very least he's like, okay, 45 years later, I'm not gonna touch, okay, but I just, let me just do that. Let one little thing, you know, is that and you, you just go, well, of course, we'll let you do whatever you want your Sondheim. <laughs> well, I'm so glad he didn't abandon this one. to uh, wrap up these conversations with just sort of a, 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 a proposed question. Let's suppose that you are, you, you, you see somebody, they let you know, I'm going to see this show tonight. I have no idea what it is. It's called Saturday Night. Sondheim wrote it. Your response to them, you're going to see Saturday Night. Oh, here's what you're, here's what you're in store for. Here's what you're going to experience tonight. What do you tell them that they can experience about Saturday night? What's their evening going to be? First of all, who's doing it? No. Um, <laughs> Where did you get a ticket? <laughs> right. Allow yourself to enjoy the wash of being new again. 
allow, allow, allow for a couple hours of something that you think you know you're gonna enjoy with Sondheim and then just go, oh wow, he even wrote this. And just allow yourself to be super charmed by it and leave knowing, yeah, Steve Sondheim as a kid wrote this. I think I would say something similar as something like, I'll pay you for your ticket. Give me what you want for it. And <laughs> I would say something like, I, I, I do love the metaphor that he has, uh, that he put to it was like, these are my baby pictures. And the, they, I don't want to, you know, you look at baby pictures and you say, hey, that's a baby. And then you move on, you know? And I think I would say, these are baby pictures of one of the most inspiring, most inventive, most reimaginative, most... Uh, yeah, it completely in reinventing the form of musical theater and his first crack at it. And what a what a lovely um, moment that we get to see the first of something because sometimes, you know, they do get tucked away and never seen again or they're just abandoned. And um, and we, we should you should definitely enjoy something of the, the spark of creation that's happening here. Um, I would say you're going to go to something that is completely charming, sometimes hilarious, sometimes will seem old fashioned, but a great reminder that one of the great minds of our time is also human, also had a beginning, a middle, an end, and you are privy to the beginning of his process, which is a great privilege to witness. Oh, that's so great. Now I want to go see it. <laughs> <laughs> Please do it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and love digging back into this show because it should not be um, forgotten because it's just one of, it just tells the whole story of the guy who we love so much. But mm. Thank you all so much for being here with me. Have a great thank day. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure to speak with you all. Take care and happy new year. Bye. Bye.